Welcome to The Hotspot. I'm your host, Armand Desfouliar Jamandi. Today we have a conversation with Para One, also known as Andrew. We're going to discuss some of the most recent helium improvement proposals, HIP 21 through 26. We'll start off with a basic explanation of each one, what the gist of it is, and then go into some technical detail about how it will be implemented. This episode goes into a decent amount of technical detail, especially in the beginning, but there are lots of good nuggets of information for anyone who's interested in the future of helium. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm really happy to get you on here. You're uh, like a prolific member in the community and you've been here since the Slack days, yes. which probably means you've been around even longer than me. <laughs> Possibly, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was actually curious, how did you get involved with Helium in the first place? Because you've been sort of like a prolific contributor for like at least a year. Yeah, so I um, been doing a startup like on the side in the IoT space, um, and I started researching, you know, how to get build cheap, reliable IoT products. Um, and you know, cellular connectivity is, of course, kind of the default that everybody comes to if if, if you're not within Wi-Fi range that you know. And so, but I started researching alternatives because um, of the um, you know the downsides of cellular. It's expensive. You have to deal with SIM cards. Um, you know, large telecoms um, and came across Helium. And so I uh, started researching them a bit more, uh, experimented with, with it a bit. Um, and then for the specific product I was working on, um, came to the conclusion it wasn't perfect for our application because we were moving tens of megabytes a month um, per device, you know, where Helium is more uh, lower data rates than that. Um, but I stayed interested in the project. I think it's, you know, a very interesting idea. I absolutely see the use case wasn't for that specific niche product, but I stayed involved in the community and tried to support its growth. Um, so that's kind of how I got introduced to it, you know, looking at it as an alternative um, to the big uh, cellular telecom providers um, and yeah, stuck with it. Yeah, well, you, you've definitely supported its growth. Uh, you're the author of HIP 15 and HIP 17, which mm -hmm. are the two mechanisms that uh, are, are essentially the basis of how proof of coverage works and how rewards are distributed for proof of coverage uh, challenges mm -hmm. and witnesses. And what, like, what inspired you to uh, get started on like creating those? Like, what problems did you see? The the biggest one problem I saw was that, like, the biggest motivator the 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 blockchain really has is rewards, right? At the end of the day, it's you know, that's how you can tune behavior. Um, and so, and with the existing, uh, the previous uh, proof of coverage uh, model and reward structure, I, to me, it didn't seem like it was rewarding coverage. Like if you step back, you know, and said, okay, I get that these things ping back and forth, but like hotspot A provides 10 times the acreage of coverage as hotspot B, but if B has a bunch of little hotspots next to it, it can ping back and forth these multi-hop uh, POCs and get a lot more rewards. So I've tried to brainstorm ways to say, how do we make it so that, you know, we build in redundancy. We know that these are um, kind of commercial grade installed in homes. These aren't battery backed up, dedicated backhaul links, you know, so these are unreliable hotspots compared to like a telecom, how they would consider it. So we need some redundancy that needs to be included in, in the reward structure. We need to provide coverage area as a motivator. So just pinging back and forth between 
point A and point B isn't valuable as being able to talk to 10 distinct different points around you. Um, so that's how I try to, you know, just brainstorm building that reward structure um, into the proof of coverage, both like the mechanics of how proof of coverage is actually executed with the, um, the beaconing as well as HIP 17, which is more the, on the, like the area side. So we say, okay, we, you know, put a hundred hotspots in one location, you won't get a hundred times reward where with the uh, previous method, you could see a massive multiplier. Um, so that's kind of my motivation, um, you know, as well as working within the constraints of what um, Helium had built at the time. So they, you know, heavily based on the um, Uber H3 um, hexes, which I think you know, work very well, especially in resource constrained, you know, um, uh, consensus group stuff like on the Raspberry Pis. So I said, great, I'm going to copy that idea and use the existing blocks, uh, hexes, sorry, and then, um, you know, build out from there. And so there, you know, it's, I would, I would not say it's perfect. I'd say it's a big step, you know, it's a good rev one, rev two kind of motivator for providing spread out coverage, verifiable coverage. So you need to be able to talk to other hotspots in that area um, and reward witnessing, which is, you know, receiving RF signals, um, hotspots receiving RF signals, which is the much larger use case, you know, for sensors, most of the time, they're just going to be transmitting and the hotspots are receiving. So I wanted to reward that mechanism more than the opposite, which is, you know, hotspots transmitting, sensors receiving. That happens, but it's probably 1,000th as often as the opposite. Yeah, I think there were a ton of improvements brought on by 15 and 17. As you said, going from multi-hop to single POC, beacon POC, it just drastically simplifies everything. It, it, it simplifies the uh, chain bloat, it reduces chain bloat, it simplifies the calculations. It just simplifies the mental model for people mm -hmm. um, that they don't have to think about whether their hotspot is going to get choked off of a proof of coverage chain because you know there's one unreliable hop or something like that, which yeah. was, I'm sure there was tons of, I know because I, I wasted a lot of time thinking about that personally. Like, yeah. oh man, if, I, if I'm, if I'm going to take a hotspot offline or move it, I better like be sure to reset its location first or it's going to kill all the earnings in the area or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I do like too that there's no, or at least it's less clear that there's no failure, right? With, with the multi-hop, right. there was, you failed at something. Where with beaconing, as long as someone kind of hears you, as long as you receive something, you don't know that like, oh, well, we really tried to make sure A heard B this time. It's like, okay, I heard a bunch of stuff, or I transmitted and a lot of people heard me. That's great. So it eliminates that like, well, I failed this one line of this one challenge. Therefore, something bad happened. You know, it's, right. It's part of that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's much easier to parse as well. Just thinking about building like a coverage map that the data is still just as valuable. You can still have up to 25 witnesses according to the mm -hmm. current chain bar. So there's mm -hmm. still robust uh, coverage maps that could be built with just that on-chain data. And then HIP-17 is really interesting because it it sort of provides a like uh, demographic agnostic way of limiting density, which is pretty pretty interesting. And I think our minds definitely work very differently. Like if I were to approach something like that, I think I've even pitched this a couple times in the channel and like everyone argues back against me and, and they're totally right. But I always pitch like coverage maps, like we need to have a... Or, or sorry, uh, we we need to have like reward mapping. Essentially, uh, create like a penalty map where uh, there are zones that are only allowed to earn so much based on the population, and mm -hmm. um, you know, blackout earnings in places like the ocean and you know Mount Everest and just places where there couldn't be valid hotspots. But 
Yeah. Uh, I think HIP-17 does it in just like a much more simple, scalable way. Yeah, and it is pretty complex. And I get a lot of rightly, you know, confusion about the mechanics of it. It's, it took me like, it was probably multiple months, you know, brainstorming exactly how to build that, like each hex resolution and the scaling out from there and how that whole thing works. Um, but, you know, and it, again, it's far from perfect. You'll find boundary conditions where, hey, this doesn't quite look like it makes sense. Um, but yeah, the general idea that we don't have to manually decide, okay, how much more is a square foot of coverage in New York City worth compared to a farming town in Montana, compared to Sacramento, compared to, you know, your home, small hometown in the Midwest? Is it 5x? Is it 4x? Is it 20x? You know, I, I just envision like endless back and forth. So if you have to manually pick numbers for each location, where a like a somewhat simple algorithm that kind of grows and shrinks on its own based on kind of how cities naturally grow and drink. You know, you get dense centers, less dense suburbs, less dense kind of outskirts. That's how HIP 17 kind of automatically allows for increased density and limits density. Um, so, and that could happen anywhere. If, you know, we didn't think of this medium sized city and, you know, Idaho, that's okay. It'll automatically build up a reasonably accurate, you know, uh, hotspot density limits as that city, you know, grows the number of hotspots in it. Um, that's kind of the rough idea behind it. So, um, you know, again, not, uh, not super fine detailed. You're going to find examples where eh, it kind of overestimates, you know, over rewards this area by 10, 15%, under rewards this area by 10, 15%, but you're not in the realm of this cluster is getting 10x what it should, and this cluster is getting 1% of what it should. You know, it should be on the whole relatively, you know, within first order of magnitude, relatively good. At least that was, that's, that was my goal with it, you know, not make it perfect to the percentage point, but be able to look at it and be like, yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> you know, that's. Yeah, for sure. I, I, yeah, it definitely reduces the scenarios where people are just stacking hotspots in New York City and getting all the mm -hmm. uh, tokens because that's just there's just so many hotspots and you're witnessing them and there's no scaling penalty for, for how dense it is. Right. Um, and yeah, I guess, the, I guess that, uh, sort of location agnostic methodology definitely reduces the politics of everything where someone's not manually going and saying like, um, Oklahoma city, sorry guys, you just, yeah. you don't cut it anymore. You know, you're not getting right. rewards anymore. So, yeah. um, very cool. Mm -hmm. If, if people want to hear more about, uh, hip 15 and 17, Andrew has an excellent chat with Mark Phillips who is uh, the VP of Business Development at Helium. You can find that on the Helium YouTube channel. So highly recommend that anyone who's more interested in these two topics, HIP 15 and 17, should go check those out. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's talk about some of the newer HIPs that are coming onto the scene, submitted by community members and one by Helium itself. And these are HIPs 21 through 26. So for each HIP, I figure I'll, I'll read out a summary. We can talk through the basic points. What exactly is this HIP trying to achieve in, in a, a simple sense and also in a slightly deeper technical sense? Mm -hmm. And then we can go into what are each of our pros and cons uh, for each one of these HIPs and would we support it or essentially vote for it if it came down to a straw poll in the community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's start with HIP 21. So this was actually submitted by a Helium team member, Refugeesus, mm -hmm. who is, uh, I believe, the 
sort of our main RF engineer within Helium Inc. Um, and I'll just read the summary. So POC link layer upgrades. The goal of these changes are to one, break up the proof of coverage message to improve the reliability of proof of coverage transmissions. Two, improve the quality of information gained from proof of coverage transmissions in the RF layer. The link layer is the method by which information is sent from one source to another. It sits directly above the PHY layer and below the MAC layer. For specific definition, please see the OSI model. Yeah. So there were a lot of acronyms in there that I am completely unfamiliar with, and you're the RF guy, so I'll let you elaborate on this one. Yeah, so first I'll, I'll caveat that none of these hips I wrote, and so I'm, you know, I've, I've read them, I've, I've thought about them, and, and some of them, you know, I've dug into more detail on than others and commented on um, in Discord, um, but I'm, a, I'm just a community member discussing my thoughts on these, not, a, you know, a, some, not necessarily like, you know, someone who should whose vote should matter more than anybody else's ideas you know so listen to you know what i my thoughts but uh take them with a grain of salt um you know i don't have all the answers but i'm happy to discuss these you know just from someone with a different technical background and we could see uh you know what we uh what thoughts we have on these um so yeah so in general with this uh and also for the actual authors feel free to comment corrections or if we make a mistake, absolutely. You know, again, I'm not the author. Um, you know, I don't think you authored any of these, so we're, no, we're doing no. the best we can on the reading of it. Um, but definitely. yeah, I, I host a podcast. That's what I do. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I, I know some things about software and crypto, but you know, we're, we're just taking our best guesses at interpretations here. So yeah, so, yeah it, roughly what this is uh, proposing to do is build in um, some tolerance for transmission errors. So, um, you know, if uh, a hotspot beacons out, it sends right now, uh, proof of coverage transmissions are, um, the payload is 52 bytes. There's, you know, a preamble and a, um, uh, an ending, you know, bytes there. So it's a little bit larger, but 52 byte message, let's say. Um, any, any bit flip, any received bit flip. So if you have, you know, that's, that's I think 416 bits of information there if you got 415 bits right and one wrong that's an invalid receive you did not witness that transmission you know you got one bit wrong um and that doesn't that's not the same message you know um and so uh, one thing this is trying to do is build in um split that message up into smaller chunks and build in redundancy in each chunk so you can receive you know, okay, I actually only got 412 out of 416 bits correct, but because of there's enough redundancy in the message, I'm able to, you know, decode that out and get the original correct 416 bytes back. And really you have to do this by growing the size of your transmission a bit, um, but that's roughly the intent. So what I would expect to happen here is um, there'd be more, more witnessing, um, you know, if before you only had 10 witnesses, but there's other hotspots a little bit further away from you that can't hear your transmission, they will hear some of it. Um, they'll be able to receive your transmissions and vice versa. And then possibly you're a lone wolf and there's a hotspot that's, you know, five miles away that can't hear you. Now they can barely hear you because they were hearing mostly of what you were transmitted before, but not a perfect message. Um, so you'll get more connections between hotspots with this, um, which would seem like a good thing. Um, the, the downside that I see though, is that that's not how sensors work. 
sensors don't implement this, right? Sensors just send the data the way existing proof of coverage does, which is, you know, there's some error correction built into LoRa, but uh, apparently it's not that great, you know, so it doesn't work as smoothly as this proposal would. But what I want to see in proof of coverage, possibly even more than we have today, is beacons to look like sensor data, right? You don't want to have one whole method on how we transmit and how we decode data and how we analyze connections between hotspots. And then separate from that is how sensors actually work. You know, I would, my initial thought is, okay, uh, proof of coverage is meant to, roughly meant to simulate sensors because we want sensors to be able to get coverage, not hotspots to be able to get coverage. You know, my hotspot doesn't need LoRa coverage. It has Wi-Fi. <laughs> it's the sensors around it that need connections to the internet, not other hotspots. Um, so, you know, and that, that doesn't mean that necessarily at this point, you know, say this is a bad idea, but that's, that's something that, you know, for me is like, okay, are we gaining extra from this by diverging a bit from how sensors actually transmit and receive and hotspots receive data from sensors, you know, is, is proof of coverage now going to not be representative of sensor coverage? That's an important thing, I think. Um, but yeah, and so this this hip goes into a lot of uh, some of the technical details on how this would work, and I think this is all completely correct. You know, this is a, I mean, a, a somewhat known and proven method of building in this this redundancy that I kind of simplified on being able to have receive a incorrect message or sl you know slight slightly incorrect message and being able to get the original uncorrupted message back. So 100% correct on like the technical way this would be implemented. Um, that I don't have any issue with. I think it's just like, is that, you know, the, the stepping back a couple of steps and saying, is this actually a value add to the network? Not, you know, I think that technically this would work fine. Um, and that's what, and, and that's like, I I'm a, would be a bit hesitant to, to um, build this in at, for proof of coverage. In fact, I'd almost do the opposite and say, hey, this, if this is something we want to do with proof of coverage, let's build a library for sensors to be able to send data like this. You know, maybe mm. you're a sensor that doesn't have great coverage. Laura, you know, the original built-in data, um, uh, you know, ability to do, to fix uh, corrupt messages from Laura isn't good enough for your sensor. Um, okay, great. We have this library you can use to get even more liability out of it. We can overcome some of those difficulties in Laura. And then if that's adopted and you know sensors use it, then we can turn on proof of coverage. You know, with it because say, okay, well, you know some uh, proof of coverage receipt without any bit flips is the traditional LoRa way. So we reward that a certain way. And then if you can hear data with some of these errors, but still get the raw message back, that's good too, because some sensors use that method. You know, I think the, 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 the things that are identified as like, um, you know, problems or, or downsides with LoRa, you know, which is not a perfect me communication method are valid, um, but that's what we're, Lore is what we're stuck with for sensors, unless we build this out into like a sensor library. Um, the other somewhat, you know, the little nitpicky things, which I think are all easy to overcome, but part of doing this is you have to disable the error checking in the, um, on the receipt. So right now the, uh, all the concentrators detect, you know, there's a CRC, there's a basically um, uh, a check uh, with each message to say, is this message valid or not? Um, that I have a bit flip here. I can't fix a bit flip, but it could tell the one happened. 
And right now they're configured to drop all those messages. So they just, it's as if you didn't receive the payload at all because it knows it's corrupted. Don't bother sending it to the miner. Don't bother with the miner trying to forward it to the router and, and having it reject it because it's incorrect. So I could see a lot of you know, overhead and communication back and forth because any corrupted message now will be received and try to go through the process of sending it uh, you know, as valid sensor data and it won't be. So that you can't say, in these, uh, you know, LoRa um, concentrators we have in the hotspots, you can't say, for proof of coverage, tell me this. For other things, tell me not. You know, again, mm -hmm. the goal is, it should not be able to tell proof of coverage from uh, sensor data as much as possible. Um, you know, and there's so things like that. Mm -hmm. So I want to check my own knowledge a little bit here to sort of understand the the insights behind the, this hip. Mm -hmm. So from my understanding, LoRaWAN has something called spreading factors. Mm -hmm. And those spreading factors are essentially, um, well, one thing they regulate is how much data that you can send in each packet, right? So mm -hmm. uh, a lower spreading factor, like eight, you could possibly, in the US at least, you could, you could send up to, I think, what, 242 bytes, right? I think so, yeah. And a higher spreading factor, like 12, you can only send up to 11 or 24 bytes or something like that. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's 11, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... It's interesting to think about what the different types of devices on the network would need to use spreading factor wise, because also from my understanding, higher spreading factors and lower packet sizes lead to longer transmission. Right. So right. essentially more, more range as well, right? So that's the trade-off. You can transmit shorter time, faster data rate, and it won't be received as far, or you can transfer at slower data rate uh, lower maximum payload size, but reach farther. So right. there's already some me mechanism in to, to build, to fix, you know, uh, re receive issues. You know, if you can't get a message out at spreading factor seven, you can shrink it and send it at spreading factor 10 and maybe it'll go through. Right. So many devices use a high spreading factor and maybe they only do need to send 11 bytes. Like they mm -hmm. need to send GPS coordinates. I believe that fits pretty easily into 11 bytes. Mm -hmm. So, but you're saying that, you know, it would, it would be possibly beneficial to have the network, uh, run proof of coverage as if, uh, there were devices transmitting as if there, as if the hotspots sending out the proof of coverage challenges were devices transmitting. So the behavior would be the same. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question based on all that is if we split up the messages into smaller, uh, essentially packets. Mm -hmm. um, and, and transmit them at a higher spreading factor, they would go further and we'd be able to get a, uh, a larger sense of what the connections between hotspots are. But that wouldn't necessarily represent the real world use cases for transmitters because hotspots need to be able to receive transmissions up to 242 bytes, right? Right, so I would, I would step back a bit. Splitting the message into smaller chunks and then being able to transmit a lower spreading factor, that I think is fine. That's normal LoRa, you know, mm -hmm. you can, that's not necessarily what this HIP is proposing. It's, it's one of the things that it's an outcome of what this HIP proposes, but it's not like, if you just did that, if you said, we're going to take a 52 byte message, split it up into 10 chunks of five and transmit those, you know, 10 seconds apart um, sl more slowly, and then have the receiver put them back together you would not be able to tolerate a bit flip in any of those messages, right? So okay. th this 
allow you you would be less likely to have a bit flip because you're transmitting at a lower spreading factor right and so the the ability to send and receive is improved but if you still had a bit flip in one of those messages you would still lose that receive so this is proposing something on top of that even which you're not just splitting up your same message into chunks you're encoding the message in a way that makes it longer. So your 50 byte message becomes a 60 byte message now that you split into chunks of six instead of chunks of five. But now it can tolerate, you know, I transmitted ABC, you heard ABD, but that's okay. You can reconstruct that I actually meant ABC. So verdicts on HIP 21, what do we think? Do you support it? And then I'll give my opinion. So I would say no for now. I think like this isn't necessarily um, a bad idea. I think it's it's not necessary now. I think like the maybe the downsides or the differences um, compared to the existing way that Helium works uh, or the network works um, isn't worth it at this point in time. Um, there are some pluses that it that it introduces like gathering more data without adding to chain bloat. The idea of if you split up this message and send it 10, 10 different chunks, you get 10 different RSSI readings, 10 different signal to noise ratio readings. Um, but there are other ways to do that. You could just beacon 10 times, you know, have a smaller message and send it 10 times instead of sending it uh, once. Um, so I think you could pull elements out of this and implement them um, sooner and get some of the benefits. But I don't think that the, um, additional ability to uh, like recover bit flips is necessary. I think like the existing proof of coverage method is already, um, you know, pretty, has pretty large range. I mean, we're have massive antennas up high on people's roofs transmitting at, uh, you know, hotspot power versus little sensors with tiny antennas stuck in someone's basement. So I think that's already like proof of coverage already overestimates sensor coverage, I don't think we need to make that even larger. Okay, At this point so would, would, you, would you categorize this as unnecessary complexity? Yeah, exactly. I think, it's, I think as written, I mean, it's, it works. I see the data that it collects would be valid. I don't necessarily know what we would do with that data today. Um, I think, you know, to use, certainly you shouldn't reward a witness with bit flips as much as a witness without bit flips you know it's a lower quality witness so how do you build that into the model of rewards um that's a big open question um you're going to get a lot of junk data into your hotspot that's going to have to be processed maybe processed locally you know you can decide uh whether it's something needs to be forwarded or not but that adds complexity to the packet forwarder or to the miner because you don't have to receive you know data with bit flips and then decide is can I use this or not? Where now it's just like, oh, failed CRC check, throw it away. Easy to filter and keeps it simple. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, the math behind this is certainly correct. The, this type of, uh, you know, link layer modification that's proposed is used in many places and many, you know, many different industries. Um, so it's, it's certainly a, a, you know, a way to get more, more reliable communication but it's just not the way the network works now. And I would say, let's punt it until this becomes, you know, the highest priority or we figure out ways to build this into sensors as well as hotspots, something like that. Got it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, personally, on this one, I, I'm going to remain neutral. I don't have the RF knowledge to really know uh, mm -hmm. whether or not it's it's a good idea to, to do now or later. So I'll uh, I'll, I'll leave every, I'll leave uh, everyone with uh, nothing from my end on this one. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to hip twenty two anchor gateways. So mm -hmm. this was um, you actually co-authored this, mm -hmm. uh, or at least you're on here. You, you did co-author. Yeah, this, yeah. So I did. I I I help out with the brainstorming. Um, and I made some of these diagrams in here and kind of the architecture, the proposed architecture at least. Um, but just kind of let uh, the other author, other authors actually write up the hip and kind of take ownership of it. So I can, I contributed, I'd say I would not, I mean, I'm fine being listed as an author, but I, I'm not actively um, advocating for this hip. I just kind of wanted to help brainstorm some of the technical details of it. Got it. Yeah. Well, in that case, um, I'm, I'm going to, since the problem statement, the summary here is kind of long, I'm going to su summarize it the way that I understand it, just from absorbing knowledge from the community. And then you can correct me and uh, mm -hmm. where I might be not quite getting it. So essentially anchor gateways, they establish a physical route of trust. So the idea is to create hotspots that are locked down in the sense that uh, that that we can the network can fully trust the data that is coming into them via RF um, and possibly also GPS data mm -hmm. and the whole idea behind this is to prevent RF spoofing and some of the other types of gaming that we've seen where people create uh, essentially cheat nets by extracting keys from rack miners and and putting them into the cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, this would be a, a different type of hotspot that would be able to seed an area with validity because you can trust all of the radio communications going into and out of it. And this is done partially with a trusted slash encrypted radio concentrator. That's my mm -hmm. understanding. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's very good, uh, you know, kind of summary of it. I, one thing that I know when we were discussing this HIP in the details is this intentionally tried to split out just the technical building of a trusted uh, anchor gateway and not necessarily how it would be used. Kind of hard to do one without the other. I mean, you know, this could be a great, how it's used determines whether it's a good idea or not, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so this is like half the story. Um, I think we should, you know, discuss potential ways it's used, but this doesn't necessarily propose we're going to trust this gateway and now we can do X with it. It's just proposing, hey, here's a way to build a gateway that we trust more than the current gateways and addresses some of the main, the easiest ways that gaming occurs today. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think like, so just roughly the idea is, you know, there's a concentrator, which is the kind of the brain, not necessarily the brains, but the RF portion of the hotspot that can receive and send lower signals. And um, on DIYs and a lot of the third-party gateways, once you get into the into the software on them, it's it's unencrypted between the chip that actually does the RF communication and the miner that processes that communication, those that data that comes in and decides, you know, uh, and forwards it along to the um, consensus group or you know forwards it onto the router that's data. Um, and the one main problem here is we reward proof of coverage based on your location based on being able to witness other hotspots over RF. But 
that's just a raw text, basically a raw text file. It's JSON, but it let, you know, let keep it simple. It's just a raw text file from one part of code to another part of code that says, hey, I heard ABC, the signal strength was minus 100 and the signal to noise ratio was five. Okay, but there's no way to know whether that came from a chip with an antenna plugged into it or me typing that into a file and saying, here, look at this data I just got. Right. That's one of the, that's, and that's one of the major ways that gaming occurs. And one, that's basically what my uh, middleman software does, which I use as kind of like a, hey, don't do DIY until this middleman doesn't work. Cause it's very easy to, you know, manipulate data and send data over the internet instead of sending it, sending it over RF. Um, and that breaks the whole proof of coverage. If you're not proving coverage, you're proving that two miners can send data back and forth over the internet. That's not useful to sensors. Um, so what this proposes is, yeah, a way to build some of that authentication into the concentrator board itself. Um, I guess we should also step back and say, so we have these authentication, these keys in the existing hotspots, right? The swarm key or the, there's a, a ECC chip that it's required now in third-party hotspots to have hardware keys. So you could say, well, there's a hardware key there. What's, what's different? Um, but the key just signs whatever you tell it to sign. So you're stuck in like the garbage in, garbage out thing. So I take my text file that I just made up and said, please sign this key. And the key signs it and sends it along to the consensus group. So now I have signed mm -hmm. data that's going to the consensus group, but it's, it's data I just made up. So that's like why the key being in the hotspot, it tells you there's a circuit board there with a key on it that it had to communicate with, but it doesn't mean the data that came from the RF concentrator is real data. It could be just junk data that I told the key to please sign for me and it signs it and moves on. You know? So right. this roughly what this does is it puts that hardware key onto the concentrator board itself. So it puts it right next to on the same circuit board as the RF hardware that actually does the processing. Enwell is proposing some way to make it so you can't like you know, solder little wires onto the circuit board to be able to, to get in that path. Um, but basically move the hardware key onto the RF board itself um, and do some other um, ways to make it so it's difficult to physically attack this chip. And now we know at least that something epoxied to an RF chip signed the data. It's, so I can't like put a text file in there, right? I mean, it's a, it's a circuit board with direct traces going back and forth to each other between the RF hardware and this encrypted, uh, this, the, the keys to sign the transaction. So I can still take that data and manipulate it, but then it's not gonna match the signature. I can't re-sign the data with manip manipulated data. It just says whatever the, the, the chip, the physical RF chip spits out, that's signed directly on the board. And then I get a payload that's still data, signal strength, and a signature now. We add a signature that comes straight from the circuit board instead of built by the hotspot. Um, now, one thing I wanna also caveat is, you know, and people need to think about when they when we're designing or looking at ways to defeat gaming is nothing is ungameable, right? I mean, you take this thing, you give it, you take it into a lab with uh, you know expensive LoRa test equipment, you know, you can simulate, you can still simulate the whole world, you know, if you want to. I mean, there's still an antenna ports on this thing, so mm -hmm. um, you know they test LoRa. There's companies that test LoRa devices, sell 
you know, cellular devices all the time in these big fancy chambers with, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of test equipment and they can fake a city if they want to. Um, that's very expensive, you know? So that's, instead of me with a text file now, I have to go rent a professional lab and hire technicians to run RF equipment. But it's important, I think, to always look at, okay, nothing is beyond the ability to, um, to game. We just have to make it so that the benefit of gaming is lower than the cost of gaming. Right now, it's very easy to create a text file or you know to run some Python code. It's very cheap and easy to do that. Um, so that's why gaming is is profitable now. If it costs you fifty thousand dollars to rent out a lab and and technicians to game, and you make ten thousand dollars on that, we just lost forty thousand dollars. You know, it's not worth it anymore. So that's kind of what this wants to do is make it so the barrier to game is high enough that it's no longer profitable to do it. It doesn't make it go away, but it says the financial benefit of gaming is not there. Um, and that's kind of why I think it's important to tie this to how it's actually gonna be used. Because again, this isn't ungameable. This is a lot harder to game. You know, you're not, you can also pop these chips off the board. You know, even if you epoxy them on, you can, there's, you know, basically fine uh, grinders you can use to grind the epoxy off and get down into the chips. But it, now you're, again, you're doing professional equipment to get to this level. But if I can then uh, sign and authenticate a thousand virtual hotspots with my, you know, grind down professionally reworked uh, anchor gateway, then it's still profitable, right? So I, that's where I think yeah. we have to be careful that like, I think this is a good idea. I, um, I don't like the idea of this being able to like bless whole regions because you have one of these around. You know, I think it could be something simple like anchor gateways get 20% extra um, credit for witnessing than non-anchor gateways because we know that it's harder to fake the data coming in. Yeah. 20% is decent. It's worth it. You're certainly going to you know get a return on investment because these will be a bit more expensive, but it's not enough for you to say, okay, great. Now I'm going to get a lab and hack this whole thing up and I'm going to get my, you know, distributed Amazon cloud miners all networked and on and proven out because it's only this one that gets any benefit from it, you know? So I think that you need to keep it like small. This is, you know, my, again, my opinion, like the benefit needs to be there. So people are motivated to buy anchor gateways, but you having it like seed trust to a whole region, I think is asking for trouble uh, just because again, people can, and for some people, it'll also be profitable to do it. It'll be the large scale gamers, you know, kind of the institutional gamers that are going to do it, not, you know, some college kid wanting to triple his, uh, you know, the, make three fake gateways with one anchor gateway. But you can still have like Modesto level gaming, you know, yeah. I mean, that's they spent Modesto had spent like $300,000 on gateways alone, made a couple million in helium. They could. They'd spend $100,000 to game again, right? That's yeah. reasonable. <laughs> they made 10 times that. So that's kind right. of what you have to be careful of is that um, there's always going to be motivation to, to break these things. You have to make it so that it doesn't, the benefit isn't enough to outweigh the cost of, of gaming with it. Yeah, I guess the cost benefit analysis comes down to could I deploy 1,000 legitimate hotspots in optimal locations that would get me good earnings? Right. Um, and if not, could I find a cheaper solution to game and essentially right. build a fake hotspot farm that is in optimal locations on the map with perfect scaling factor and everything? Right. So, so it's, it's that cost benefit analysis. Is this a scalable 
solution? Like why, why, why under this proposal shouldn't every gateway become an anchor gateway and this just be the default from now on? Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think it certainly could um, be that that should be the case. You know, the hardware to do this is very simple. I mean, it would probably add production wise five to 10 bucks <clears throat> to the cost of a concentrator board. You know, they're about a hundred dollars now. So mm -hmm. 10, 15%, you know, extra cost to, to implement this at scale, you know, assuming that rack or someone similar says we're going to build 20,000 anchor gateway concentrators. Now you could do it at that, that price level. Um, and I think that that makes total sense. The problem is if you require it, then you are accepting that basically it's a closed hardware system. You can't have, you know, the 50,000 TTN gateways that are out there now become helium gateways because they don't have secure concentrators in them. And you also run into the, a bit of a ship has sailed thing where we're going to have 50, 60,000 gateways already or hotspots already sold and out there, you know, in the next couple of months, what do you do with those? Yeah. Um, you know, so it's something I think you, you know, we, again, and I think that small benefit, if you have like a 10, 20% increase in earnings um, by having one of these, people will move that direction. That's enough benefit where people will say, great, why would, you know, if it's uh, $400 for a normal hotspot and $440 for a anchor hotspot, but it earns 20% more on witnessing, that sounds good to me. I'll buy one of those instead, you know? So I think you could let the market kind of naturally push that direction. Um, and even with like a somewhat minimal benefit. Um, the other problem with these is I think, uh, you know, these will verify things that it receives, but you can't trust people that receive its transmissions, right? So if I'm a non-anchor gateway and I hear an anchor gateway transmit, I can send that same packet out to my 10, 20, 100 other fake gateways and say, I witnessed it. Right? I mean, it's still, so it only works in one direction. Now, I, you know, you can trust a bit that it's there, um, you know, because if it has secure GPS on the anchor gateway, but it only works for its receives, not its transmits. And, yep. you know, I, I have a, a paper that I published or published that I posted on Discord about um, a gaming method that I call like colluding gateways. Um, and if you look at that one, I think I also mentioned that like, even with anchor gateways deployed, even with one of these in the area, you couldn't detect that that's gaming. You could, I mean, you could probably still game with that method. You'd need multiple of these around a fake cluster to really be able to tell that it's fake. Um, and, you know, so that with scale, if these really get deployed, you know, everywhere and they become like basically every helium gateway is a, um, an anchor gateway, then that's possible. But if this is like a premium product that, you know, you're gonna have only 10% maybe of gateways sold are anchor gateways. There's gonna be a lot of areas of the country and the world where there are none of these around and I can build, you know, moderately sized gaming clusters and still earn. So that's where like, I think this is, this is a step in the right direction. I think, you know, this should be pursued. And then I think like what I would say really is this hip is incomplete. It needs a, uh, a compatible hip that addresses how this will be used. So it'll be like approved HIP 22 plus HIP 30 that introduces how we're gonna build in the trust that anchor gateways give us into a reward system, um, you know. But I think this is, is, you know, the proposed architecture here is pretty good. Again, it's not unhackable, ungameable, 
Um, but you know, it's probably, I mean, it'd be a hundred times harder. One, you know, one hundredth the number of people would know how to game this system that know how to game the existing system. So it yep. certainly raises the barrier to be able to game at all with the, one of these types of uh, gateways. So I think, and that's worthy to do, you know, and then you just have to make sure that those people remaining that can still game it aren't motivated to do it. And that's kind of the counterpart hip that's missing uh, for this one. So with all that said, would you support HIP 22? I would once it's paired with something else, you know, because I think that's the key is I'd say, I think this is a good, good baseline for the hardware. Um, I think, you know, it's a would be a multiple orders of magnitude step up from the current um, hardware. And then it's just uh, fill in the blanks on how we're going to use this. Because um, again, you build these today, and there's not, you're, they're no different. There's nothing to do with them, right? Okay, I have an anchor gateway versus a regular gateway. Right now, the system would reward them identically. It wouldn't even notice that this is an anchor gateway. So we need to fill in that gap and like, okay, now that I have this anchor gateway, what does it do? Besides just the same thing that a normal gateway does. Um, but yeah. I think this is a major step in the right direction. And I would you know, say, let's continue this effort and then fill in that other half. And then I'd, I'd, uh, I'd vote for both of them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm conflicted on this one. I think... On one hand, the fragmentation and, and the what do we do with it is, as you said, an open question. Mm -hmm. I think there will be a lot of people that are upset that they already bought a gateway and now there are these anchor gateways. On the other hand, 95% plus of the Helium gateways that will ever be deployed have not been deployed yet. Right. So if there was any time to do it, it would be as soon as possible. And it does seem like it is quite a step up in uh, preventing gaming. So that's, you know, that's kind of, um, kind of imp very important. Yeah. As you and the other thing too to look at, I think is, you know, it's down the, the road for healing, but like if they do start getting into other uh, wireless protocols, you know, there's some talk of like maybe doing Wi-Fi or 5G or, you know, basically expanding this model of, of deploying wireless networks to other technologies. Start here. Don't, you know, whatever the Rev.1 Wi-Fi hotspot is, build it with the hardware trust as close as possible to the actual RF hardware to avoid the gaming from the start. You know, I mean, I think, you know, Helium has done a great job of what it's done so far, but it's good to reflect back and be like, okay, there are some gaps. Maybe we could, you know, for the next round of technologies, build a, pick a Wi-Fi chip that has security in it already, or, you know, what make this a requirement from the get-go. So, you know, hundred percent of hotspots from the start have, a higher level, a higher barrier to gain than, than the current ones. So even if that's like, you know, even if this doesn't have progress in the lower side, if Helium 5.0 Wi-Fi gateways have this built, this this architecture kind of built into it, I think that's, a, you know, another big win there. Well, a thing to note as well is that this is only important for proof of coverage and who knows if those uh, other types of gateways would even participate in proof of coverage. Maybe right. proof of coverage is a lower only thing. So, right. Uh, it's, I, I, I mean, I am conflicted. I think that this is undeniably a huge improvement in, mm -hmm. uh, anti-gaming, which I strongly support. And, and it just, we need to have strong anti-gaming in order for the network to succeed. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I've seen tremendous progress that the Helium team has made, uh, on creating some more black box anti-gaming solutions on the software side that has really killed almost all of the gaming that was out there as as of today that i know about so mm -hmm. i my my belief that this can be done in software 
is increasing over time mm -hmm. and, and that maybe we don't need the secure hardware, but at the same time, doubling down and having both never hurts. And so I think if we were to see this happen, I'd like it for it to be a step change and just say that all future gateways have to be this way um, rather than like, a, oh, some do, some don't approach. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've learned in the past that like, I don't know, having heterogeneous uh, clusters of, of, of hardware or, or, you know, whatever it might be is just very, it's tough. You yeah. have different requirements, you have different rewards, you have different expectations and, um, but I, I think overall I support the idea. I, I guess I, I'm somewhat on your side with this, which is I'd like to see where this goes with further thought and, and some actual s solid rules on what, what would it would be used for and how it be used. Right. Yep. All right. We're going to skip HIP 23, but I'll explain that when we get to HIP 25. Mm -hmm. um, let's go to 24, mm -hmm. and that is reward splitting. Mm -hmm. So I think this started out as ownership splitting, the author uh, is a community member, um, Bonesaw Ceviche in the in the Discord chat, and at Eric M Heilman on uh, on GitHub. And so I'll just read the summary. This proposal introduces a new transaction reward split v1, which would allow a hotspot's revenue stream to be split between multiple addresses. This split would be stable as once a revenue stream is transferred from address A to address B, the only way to reverse the transfer to, would be for B to voluntary, voluntarily transfer it back to A. Transfer, transfers would range from one to 100% and would have an optional amount of HNT associated. The sole purpose of this transaction would be to enable reward splitting on chain. Reward splitting would be in no way indicative of hotspot ownership and legal hotspot ownership would remain an off-chain responsibility the ability to perform transactions such as location assertions and hotspot transfers would continue to be exclusively available to the hotspot owner, regardless of how the hotspots revenue stream is split. Mm -hmm. So pretty straightforward. I know there have been a couple of iterations of this one. It started out as ownership is being split. And then I think the community decided that that's a little complicated. Maybe there are legally dubious parts of that. And mm -hmm. um, then it moved on to this sort of reward split plus optional HNT amount. So, essentially someone could pay you in order to uh, have a share of the future rewards. It's kind of enables the securitization model of, of hotspots. And there was also an idea of um, a two-step transaction wherein the uh, owner had to initiate the reward split and one of the split recipients, each one of the split recipients would have to accept the reward split. But as I understand it, the that part of it and the optional HNT part of it have been dashed for now. Mm -hmm. in order to focus on a much simpler model where there could be up to some amount of splits designated by chain var. I think it's four right now is being proposed and uh, the hotspots revenue in each epoch would essentially just be automatically split between those, those N wallets where N equals four currently. Mm -hmm. So that's my uh, understanding on anything you want to add there. No, I think that's what it's, it's summarizing um, or what, what the purpose of the, the hip is. Um, yeah, and for this one, I think uh, I go two very different ways based on like a very important detail here. And it's like, does this have to be on chain? I think a lot of people advocating for this are like fleet owners, people that own multiple hotspots and want to give them to host to host them. 
and just find it burdensome to look up hotspot earnings and split those earnings manually to the people hosting. And they say, this is a way to make that so I don't have to deal with that overhead. And that I say, there's thousands of other ways to do that off chain. You don't need like the mechanics of the blockchain to make, to figure out what a hotspot earned and divvy it up based on percentages, right? And so what you do need the built into the blockchain, what I call the ownership, but you know, I think it's important thing is like, is whether it's revocable or not. If someone has a reward split and only their wallet key can give that transfer that or give it away or, or something like that, then that's, that's blockchain activity. You need key signatures in order to change the state, right? That's, I think, really important. If, if the owner, you know, what I think they see list here can revoke somebody else's split, you don't need their key, their wallet to sign the, that transaction, the, then it's an off-chain activity. There's no key signatures required, right? To, if I can revoke your thing, then your, your wallet key, your authority doesn't matter there. Because I my only my keys matter. So if I maintain exclusive control of the whole thing, then why have why have it be an on-chain activity? You know, that's where I think where I would step back and say, if we want a way to automate reward splitting, write some Python code, sit down for an hour every week in with Excel and do it. And that's part of being a fleet owner. You know, you want to make a bunch of money running this kind of a business, whether it's a business or not, but that's kind of, you know, you want to do that sort of operation. There's some grunt work involved in that. <laughs> oh yeah. Or there's some expense. There's services already from the community that will manage this for you and give you those numbers and, and automate it already for you. And maybe you have to pay them, you know, five bucks a month or whatever for the service. Um, that's how, that's how businesses are run. You know, if something's too annoying to do yourself, you pay a service to do it or you invest the hours. It doesn't have to be built into how the like mechanics of the blockchain work. Um, so that's like a very strict distinction for me. If it's something that needs, you know, the recipient's key to revoke, then it's an on-chain activity. If it doesn't, then it needs to be solved off-chain and keep it simple. Because um, this does add a lot of complexity. I mean, you just look at the discussion and there's already a bunch of like, well, how do we handle this case? How do we handle this case? How do we handle that case? And it's going to be something that seems simple. There's a lot of details that are going to make it very complex to actually implement. And that's what I think we need to make sure that it's worth it to do that effort. Does it have to be on chain? It's very easy to change Python code or a website or you know your Excel spreadsheet. That's easy to do. You don't need a bunch of people to sign it. You don't need to push updates to 50,000 hotspots. It just, it's easy to do that. So keep it off chain as much as possible. And only things that have to be done on chain should be done on chain. And I think there was somebody in the, like the hip open discussion that proposed that a good idea is to have a whole separate channel um, or discussion group about things that are good ideas for the community or for, for Helium, the company, and not necessarily things that need to be built onto the blockchain. Because I think this is a great reward splitting, you know, even if it's not ownership for key signature change, I get why that's annoying. I get why, you know, people want better ways to do that. Hosts want to know that they're getting rewarded what they should be rewarded and not that the, the fleet owner messed up a number or something like that, right? So there are there is a need for this type of system. Um, I just think it could be off chain and then, you know, then I'd be 100% for it and support it if it was like an off chain activity, if it falls in that bucket. And that's the way I think most of the community is leaning is like, well, if I'm the fleet owner, I would want to be able to turn a host off if they're not following the rules or something like that. I said, that's great. I under completely understand that, but then just keep it all off chain.
you can do that today, right? right. With a Python script or with the uh, uh, community's tools, you know, you can do that today. So why does anything need to change? Um, that's that's kind of where I fall on this. And I guess one other thing too is even if you want to do that, so you know, let's say you're one of these massive company fleet owners and you have thousands of hotspots, um, you now have to do say a thousand transfers every week or every 24 hours, however often you pay your hosts. Um, you could introduce a reward or a transfer, you know, uh, the way the normal um, HNT transfers work now, but it's like a one-to-many. Basically like the rewards transaction is now. So I have, I earned a thousand HNT this month for my hundred hosts and I need to give each of them uh, 10 HNT instead of a hundred transactions. I just take, take my wallet, give 10 HNT to these hundred addresses or you know, each one gets a different amount. That I could see wanting to be an on-chain activity to kind of simplify the one-to-many payment relationship, but that's much simpler than this whole built-in rewards thing. You're still a manual, the fleet owner clicks a button that says pay, and then there's a transaction that goes to the blockchain and distributes it, but that's a much, much simpler way to make that process, get you 80% of the way there on like the annoyance of making payments to hosts versus building in this actual reward splitting on chain. But well, it's funny that you present the one-to-many idea because that actually does exist on chain. Okay. And yeah. It, I, I don't do much in like the payment side of things, so I don't know. But if that transaction already exists, then I'd say there's even less of a need for this uh, to be implemented, especially without like, again, the key signing requirement to revoke your reward split or not. That's, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the multi-payment, it's called Rewards V2. It exists on chain. You can pay up to 50 recipients in one transaction and drastically reduces the fee that you have to pay, although you have to still pay per byte that you send through the chain. But, you know, that's standard. And so it's definitely possible. It's not widely adopted yet because mm -hmm. the official wallet doesn't support it. And you can imagine the size of the QR code that you'd have to scan. But mm -hmm. I'm actually personally working on trying to get that into the V2 or V3 Helium app. So nice. um, I think it's an important thing for anyone who's paying out hosts. And yeah, I, I wanna come at this from a sort of opposite perspective, which is the business and tax side of things. So I think actually one of the most important distinctions, um, one of the most important distinctions with this proposal that, uh, that would be enabled is the distinction of who bears the tax risk. So in a traditional host setup, uh, in a traditional like patron or company and host setup as you have right now, um, the company will receive all the payments from the blockchain and will split them up uh, dep depending on what their deals are with each one of their hosts and they'll pay out the hosts either weekly or monthly. So essentially what this does is allows the company to take on most of the tax risk because well in the US, mining income is treated as taxable income. So you have to report your mining income at the cost basis of what the price was every 30 minutes, essentially, because that's when the mining happens. So if there's a wild price swing and, and the price goes like 3x or something um, on Monday, and then you do a bunch of mining, your hosts do a bunch of mining, and then you have to pay them out on Friday and the price comes back down 3x, essentially you're on hook for 3x as much income as you are paying out to your hosts um, for each one of them. And so you bear the you bear the large burden of the tax risk there. Now, this is actually a great service that you're providing to your hosts because you get to you get to give them a predictable payout day 
so that they know when they get that payment, they'll have a certain cost basis. If they want to sell some to cover their taxes because you're giving them income, they can sell at probably around the price that you paid them if they do it quickly, if they do it within the same day. So you're, you're essentially giving your host predictability uh, when it comes to taxes. Now, if you were to use something like HIP24, one great benefit to the company would be that you would no longer bear the tax risk. You would not have the income that you would have to then pay to the host. You'd have whatever share that you kept and you'd still be responsible for that income, but you would take no risk of having a different cost basis on your income than you have when you come around to the payout. So you essentially offload the tax risks to your hosts and it's up to you uh, if that's something that you actually want to do. But and you can prevent- solve that today off chain just by running that Python script every 30 minutes instead of running it every month. Right. Right. Oh, totally. Month, just run it every hour or run it, you know, whatever you're or or build it in that if the, you, you know, the price jumps up by more than 10%, you just immediately pay out any deltas. It's usually once a week. But if you see a sudden price swing, pay, you know, something like that. Right. For so sure. it, it's that's where I'd say. I, that is a valid point, but you know, the benefit is not that it's on chain. The benefit is that it's done every 30 minutes. It's done every, right. So you can right. solve that problem by just paying your host faster. Very um, true. Yeah. And, and, and that I was going to get into custodial risk as well, holding all their tokens for a week. But as you said, same, same problem, same solution. You could just pay them more frequently. Right. Um, of course that comes at a cost to you, but you know, it's definitely arguable that, uh, on the negative side of this, it will bloat the chain significantly. If you just think about how many more accounts will be referenced in each Epochs reward transaction. And I know that the team is already doing some big work to cut that down with uh, the rewards V2 transaction, where not every single hotspot and every single type of reward is listed in the transaction. Mm-hmm. So you're, it's just kind of undoing the work of that. And so uh, initially I was really excited about this hip, but I think I now I'm landing more in the camp of, yeah, this could be done off chain. I think they're is going to be a vibrant ecosystem of providers who are providing services to do this off chain. Mm -hmm. And with the amount of hotspot growth we're going to have, if we want to grow to hundreds of thousands or or millions of hotspots, and we want those each to be split by, you know, three people, we're just, you know, tripling the chain size essentially for, for no reason that couldn't be done um, through another means. Yeah, And also, um, you brought up the complexity of everything, and essentially, one of my big concerns with this HIP is that if it were to be done, and I were to support it, it probably wouldn't be done the way that I would want, which is just (laughs) single ownership and fully revocable. Um, And as you said, there are some other use cases that could be enabled. So what are those use cases exactly? Sorry, other use cases for? Uh, Not use cases, excuse me. what are the, some other mechanisms? You said there's a case in which this would be required to be on chain. Yeah. What would that look like? So I think that would be the case where, and I use the word ownership and I'll, I'll, I guess I'll continue to use it here because that's what makes most sense to me, but where ownership is actually split, right? So if you own something, if we split something, you know, legally like a LLC or a car, we car share, you know, but, but we're both signed on to the mortgage or the, you know, the contract, I can't tell act on your behalf. I can't say actually give me the whole ownership of the company. Give me that the car's mine now, it's not yours, right? There's no way to sign for you. I mean, sure, there are some legal ways, you know, whatever, but the I think the key is like where there's actual ownership that requires the party that it's split among to sign for that transaction. So 
that would be like permanent host sharing, you know, where it's, it's not a, I can't pull it back. It's not something that we're going to give you for six months. It's going to be like, we are forming an LLC. We're going to deploy hotspots on the roof of every building in the city. And we're going to have equitable splits among the, you know, the, the board of the company or something like that, you know, and it's like really permanent level of, of splitting that re requires the key signature to change it. You know, that's kind of the whole point of the blockchain is it's like, it's, it's, you need to, without the signature, nothing happens. You know, it's, that's the, that's the forcing function for everything to work. Cause like I can sign, I sign my transactions for my wallet and that's the only way any activity happens with that wallet. You need, if there's a need for that level of, uh, of ownership of split, then I think it, it's on chain. And I think that's pretty rare, right? Most of the time that's not needed. Um, you know, there was some cases like, well, the ho for a host, it'd be nice to know that they actually own it, that the, the, the fleet, you know, company or whatever can't say, actually, we're changing the terms of our agreement all of a sudden. And I was doing 50-50 split, but now I'm keeping 90% and giving you only 10%. You know, that, that would not be able to happen if it was um, like an on-chain activity, because I would keep my 50% that I signed the transaction for until I sign again saying it's something different so that's kind of a benefit of like you can't change the terms of one of these transactions without the the host signature let's say right there are no surprises right. there but that's important that that you have to require the host signature the owner can't revoke it because otherwise you're back to we don't need the host signature to change the terms why bother having this whole thing in the first place so i think that's what's important is like do you need every split owner controls their share and that's, that's, cannot be taken away from them. Otherwise do it off chain. And I think most of the applications are off chain. Hosts don't, I think hosts don't really care to know at the block level, their terms are fixed. If the fleet owner changes the terms then they say, take it back, I'm gonna buy one anyway, or something like that, right? I mean, most, I think most applications that's not actually necessary um, to happen. Yeah, I think it implies a severe lack of trust between the parties who are doing business with one another, if that were to be a requirement. And most hosting services are giving away their hotspots for free. So I think it would be unreasonable to, to say that a host would need to have that guarantee. And even a, I've heard some pitches of securitization products where mm. the hotspot is essentially owned by, you know, three, four, five, six investing parties and they should all get a split. But similarly, that could also be done within a normal business context. We already have the structures for, for things like that, for owning yeah. equity. And we already have ways of splitting um, outputts, right. uh, as you said, off chain. So. And with and with ways that can be fixed, you know, I mean, the legal system is a bit of a mess, but at least you can pull ownership away from a partner if they go off the deep end or something like that, right? And so at least there's tools in that system if you need to, you know, it's very difficult to do that, but we already built this massive structure to kind of handle that type of relationship which would be nearly impossible to do on the blockchain. I mean, again, it gets in the weeds. And now we say, okay, you can't revoke ownership from somebody unless there's like a two thirds split. Well, maybe it should be a three quarters ownership split or maybe, you know, and then you're just like, and like you said, whatever is implemented won't match your use case. Maybe you want it to be, we need 80% of the board to vote you out where somebody else says, well, as long as 51%, you know, of the ownership stake is good to vote you out, you're voted out or, you know, it, whatever's implemented, it's going to be a mess on chain or it's not going to be perfect for every use case or even the majority of use cases. So that's where I, I'd agree, like handle it off chain, 
because um, then you can vary it up by situation. If, if you want to pay out every week, somebody else wants to pay their hosts every minute, you know, and someone else wants to do it once a quarter, do it off chain. You can all have it your way. You know, that kind of makes the most sense to me. Yeah. And, and these, some of these ownership things, as you said, they're just really hard to sort of litigate. Like what does ownership mean? Is it the person who bought the hotspot and added it first? Is it the mm -hmm. person who has the majority of the earnings split? I mean, what if you want to give your hosts more than you're earning yourself? What if you give them, you know, over 50%? I mean, pff, totally crazy thing to do, right? But <laughs> someone could do it. Yeah. And then that would be a, you just give your hotspot to your host. And that's not what you, that's not what you want. Yeah. So um, I'm assuming uh, after all that, you are a no on this hip. Yeah, I think in general, I'm a no. And then, you know, I, I could be convinced otherwise, depending on what is actually implemented. But I think in order for me to be a yes, it would be such a niche implementation that honestly, most hosts wouldn't do it anyway. Right. Most hosts would rather have the control. So even if this isn't implemented on chain the way I would approve it, pretty much every every fleet owner, I guess I should say, not the host, the fleet owners would right. say, I don't like that idea. I'm going to keep it off chain anyway. So then it kind of defeats the purpose. Yep. I, uh, you're not the first person to express that pretty yeah. much exact thought to me. And I, I initially supported this hip. I was actually super excited because I was like, oh my God, I don't like, you know, not, none of the fleet managers have to send out 1099s anymore. This is going to reduce all the friction and mm -hmm. this is just going to make things so simple with hosts. And um, it's, it's actually, it actually adds more complexity than it does simplicity. And so um, I, I'm definitely a, a no on this one at this point as well. Yeah. Let's move on to hip 23 and 25. So I skipped 23 earlier because 23 and 25 are essentially the same thing. 23 was proposed by community member uh, Chris V on Christmas, 1225, 2020. And HIP 25 was then proposed on January 11th by Evan, and who's the blockchain lead at Helium and the Helium team. Um, so this is one of those awkward moments where the Helium team was working on something internally. Community member also proposed a very similar thing. And then it's like, well, Actually, they've had a lot of internal discussions and here's a version that's like slightly more fleshed out and, and kind of supersedes. So HIP25 is essentially what we're working with now. Uh, and HIP25 is validators. So I'll just read the summary. This HIP adds a new class of actors to the network called validators. They will be stake actors, staked actors with the intention being to run them on stronger hardware with better network connections than the current hotspots. They will serve the dual purpose of being eligible for block production and also in the future, acting as proxies for lightweight, non-chain following gateways. So lots to unpack here, mm -hmm. but I'll preface it by saying that all blockchain activity is currently run on the hotspots themselves, on Raspberry Pis, running on consumer internet connections, and often 3G, uh, and just very low bandwidth spotty connections. Mm -hmm. And it's a miracle that it hasn't completely fallen over and it's honestly a feat of engineering that it works at all. Um, yes, <laughs> it is very impressive. It has hiccups, but when you look at what it is involved, I'm like, actually, it's, it works pretty well, like very well for what it is, like, and how difficult the, the challenge is to make it work at all. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is basically the hip twenty five is basically acknowledging that it was a crazy thing to do. It we all can't believe we all collectively can't believe it worked. But now let's let's move on to to something better. Mm -hmm. um, 
I know that the Helium team has commented that many engineering hours have been wasted just trying to get the chain to perform on these small hardware devices. And um, not to mention that consensus groups are currently chosen completely randomly. So there's, it's sort of this implicit security model where you've purchased a hotspot and now you're eligible to produce blocks. But there's nothing inherently secure than that other than the fact that someone will have to spend three or 400 bucks to purchase a hotspot um, and that there are a lot of hotspots out there and that the consensus members are randomly chosen. So the likelihood that they could, that any colluding actors could uh, control 51% or more of the network is, is very, very low. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not going to be the case going into the future where we to stick with this model as the incentive to attack the network goes up. Mm-hmm. So validators essentially introduce a proof of stake model. They bring all of the block production off of the hotspots it's no longer their responsibility. Let's move it all to a data center where it's running on, you know, some AWS cloud connection, corporate connection, 10 gigabit, high power CPU, um, high memory. And by the way, when I say high, I just mean like higher than a Raspberry Pi. So like, you know, normal four core CPU, eight gigabytes of memory is what's currently being recommended. And um, let's let's really stabilize the block times and not have to worry about, oh no, a consensus group got elected where, um, you know, eight out of the 16 members are on like 3G connections and one dropped out right after it got, you know, elected and, and just now we're having slow block times and everything is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's sort of the problem and solution that we're uh, working with here. And I'll, I'll let you add on to that. Yeah, no, I think in general, this is a, a great idea. And, you know, I think once it's implemented and it gets running, everybody's going to really enjoy it because it's going to be, I think the key, one key I think is it's going to be very transparent to hotspot owners. Like, the consensus group rewards is one of the things that's going to change. And there are some lone wolf hotspot owners, people that, you know, have that benefit and are like, oh, I'd hate to lose that. But I'll talk in a bit why I think that's kind of gone anyway. Um, but, you know, as far as how POC works, how running a hotspot works, it's going to be the same or better because the, you know, the data usage is going to go way, way, way down, especially with the, when the light gateways are introduced, um, with, you know, which will help with your residential internet, as well as, uh, you know, running over cellular networks as the backhaul. Um, and the just, there are still, you know, they did actually do a good amount of improvement on the peer-to-peer networking on the, on the internet side of things, but it's still imperfect. Still people having trouble with it today. Pretty much all of that is going to go away. So it's just going to be a much, much smoother running experience and all the, all the hiccup or not all the hiccups, a lot of the hiccups are going to go away. And, but the way the, the product that most people like having, you know, the hotspots, the RF interface side, how to do well and how, you know, what's a good setup and what's not a good setup um, as far as hotspots go, that's all going to be pretty much the same. And this change will be transparent to most, most hotspot owners. Um, it's just going to, the back end is going to work a lot better and that's, that's great. You know, So um, yeah, I'm really for this. One argument I've seen, not against validators, but just sort of a concern that's been brought up is that, oh, this is not, you know, this isn't like easy to participate in. You're taking the rewards away from the people or and giving it to some wealthy whatever. Um, what, what would you say? Yeah, to that? so I think the people need to look at the participation in that already it's somewhat limited. Like there's a cost to buying a hotspot, 300 ish dollars for once today. Um, that's beyond what lots of people can afford to, to participate in. So having a cost threshold at $300 versus 10,000 uh, HNT, certainly that's more, but 
either way, there are financial limits to what level you can participate in and how much you can afford to, you know, buying 10 hotspots is $2,000 then, but you can participate more than someone who can only afford one hotspot. So it's already somewhat scaled, you know, and I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Um, I think, you know, everyone can, or many people can participate at the level that they feel comfortable participating in. Um, it's one of the benefits benefits of it. Um, the other thing, reason why I think it's okay is this is a small segment of the reward pool. We're talking about 6% of the helium that's mined, you know, will go to these validators taking basically the chunk from the consensus group. Um, maybe if this was, you know, 80% of the reward pool, um, we could then say, okay, that's, this is now something that's only accessible to people with, you know, a lot of money, basically you know, people who already been participating um, or very early adopters or people with a lot of cash. But I don't think that's the case. And if this small segment um, you know, that needs to be somewhat limited in size and, you know, people willing to invest in the time and money to run these validators. Um, I think, I think that's an acceptable trade. You know, it's, it's, it is going to be more work. I don't think it's going to be that much work to run a validator, but it is going to be more work than running a hotspot. Um, and so I think, you know, somewhat demonstrating your, someone's willingness to participate in that effort um, with a, a larger financial stake. Um, is acceptable. And I guess the last thing is, I know already there's lots and lots of talk about pools to be able to participate if you don't have the, the um, limit. And I think that's a great way to solve this. You know, sure, there might be some small middlemen cut there where, you know, whoever's running the validator will take a slice of it um, and each pool member will get slightly less. But I think that's a great solution. You know, it's one that's already done in lots of other places. Um, and, you know, one of those let third parties solve some of the little hiccups or problems that, you know, you can't be perfectly solved by um, every, everything on chain. So I think that's, that's a good way to, to address those concerns. Yeah, and this is something that's been done by other blockchains in the past. In fact, most blockchains are either proof of work or proof of stake to come to consensus. Helium is really neither right now. It's just mm -hmm. random selection consensus group. Uh, I mean, we, we do use the Honey Badger BFT protocol, but there is no bias for selection uh, into the consensus group based on any specific attribute like how much HNT is held or staked. So mm -hmm. that's a really important thing for the network in the long term is just to have people who are very committed to the network's future to be able to stake their coins, say, I'm willing to not be able to withdraw this for five months in order to, in return, secure the network and get rewarded. Mm -hmm. And with all that said, I think this is one of the most prominent HIPs right now, mm -hmm. uh, HIP25. And personally, you know, I, I don't think it can come soon enough. I think we'd all like to see more, more stable block times and we'd all like to see just a, a more efficient structure in which to build these sophisticated structure, these sophisticated applications that need to be built, like built like anti-gaming, reward scaling and, and things like that. The, the more sort of smarts we can build in at the blockchain layer, the better. Absolutely, yeah, I think it'll, it'll be a net win for everybody. Even if people can't participate in it, the benefits of a smoother running chain and more flexibility on what can be run in the validators will mean that even people that aren't validators will benefit from validators. So it could drive down the cost of gateways significantly. You can't do light gateways without validators. So if you want a $100 gateway, 
you need validators. And that'll benefit way more people that maybe can't stake that much money, but can now buy more hotspots or can now buy a hot, their first hotspot by having the price be able to be reduced because the validators do the blockchain work. So um, in the big picture, I think for everyone, it'll be a win, even if you can't participate. But I think there are, like we said before, there are ways you can participate even if you don't have the full stake yourself, so. Absolutely, yeah, the light gateways are gonna be huge. And for those of you who don't know what that is, I'll be getting into it in a future episode. So keep an eye out for that. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the final one in our little uh, series here, HIP26 payment notes submitted by also the same author of HIP23, which was superseded by 25, Chris V, a very active member of the Helium community. And the summary is very simple. This proposal suggests the addition of a new option to the Helium wallet pay command, an optional likely length slash size restricted alphanumeric memo slash note field included with a wallet to wallet HNT payment transaction. And I thought the motivation for this one was interesting because I read that and I was like, okay, yeah, Bitcoin has this, right? You can attach essentially a memo, but the motivation was not what I expected at all. Mm -hmm. It says there have been ongoing asks within the community for some time now regarding means to connect neighboring gateway owners. Evidence of this demand can be found throughout the community and Discord in various channels. So it also points to other use cases around simple notations for payments to others for accounting slash documentation purposes similar to existing payment solutions such as Venmo, which is more along the lines of what I expected to hear mm -hmm. with this proposal. What are your thoughts on HIP26? Yeah, so this one I'm, I'm fairly indifferent about. You know, I think it's, it's fine. I, I certainly some sort of memo, although, you know, it, you could argue it's technically a bit of chain bloat. I think as long as that length is small, it's going to be fine. Um, I, I get the need or the desire to contact people. Um, that's one I think could be solved off chain in the app. You know, if, if Helium wanted to, um, you know, message a hotspot doesn't have to be through a blockchain activity. I mean, this alone doesn't do anything for you, right? The, what they really want, if they're gonna to wanna to communicate is a notification on your app to ding or something like that, right? No, and right. someone who's not actively on Discord already and really diving into the details of their hotspot aren't going to look up their transaction history and what the comment field was on one of their small payments, right? They're not gonna pay attention enough for that. So, you know, something I think, you know, maybe it's more the UI experience um, to address like the root um, reason why this was introduced. But besides that, I think it's fine. Um, one thing I would wanna make sure of, which, you know, and, and you have experience with this type of thing on other blockchains is you don't want this to become a messaging app. This is not a way to, if you're going to chit chat, you know, with a fellow hosts, I don't want that to be, you know, tiny payments back and forth. And that's how you, you do instant messaging. So something maybe where make this cheap, but expensive enough that you're not going to be like, okay, we're just going to have a messaging app over the Helium blockchain. It's going to be, uh, you know, 50 cents to a dollar to send a memo. And so I'll, it's worth it to reach out to a nearby hotspot to say, Hey, we're not talking to each other. Let's debug this. Here's my email address. Great, now take it off off chain, something like that. And, and in general, I'm indifferent about this. Um, you know, I could see its uses. Personally, I'm going to ignore any messages someone sends me. You know, I'm I'm active enough in the community that, and there's enough people around there that, you know, it's not something I pay attention to necessarily. But uh, I also don't think it's much harm, you know, to, to implement it. So, 
Yeah, I think the messaging use case is definitely a round peg in square hole scenario where yeah. there's just almost any other way to do this would be better than this. Yeah. So <laughs> there are so many existing solutions. It could be centralized or decentralized, but 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 this ain't it. So mm -hmm. I, I think I, I definitely support this hip um, from the perspective of um, a business owner who who wants to deploy hotspots. And uh, I think it just could be really useful for cross-referencing transactions between a centralized database and a decentralized database. Mm -hmm. And you know, if it, it costs a few extra um, data credits to put a few extra bytes on chain, so be it. That could be worth it for uh, a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I, I just question what the length limit should be. Um, are we going to allow people to store entire JSON blobs with up to one kilobyte on the chain, or is it just going to be like a, you know, a tweet level thing? Right. So that's definitely something that needs to be debated. I don't have a strong opinion on it. My personal opinion is um, the more uses we can get for data credits, uh, the better. Um, if we can if we can have a somewhat expensive operation, like allowing someone to store arbitrary data with their payments happen on chain, but we charge them handsomely for it, mm -hmm. I think that's probably still at least at least a neutral, if not a win, um, for the mm -hmm. Helium uh, blockchain. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I think it makes sense. You know, I would, the one thing, and I don't think this is, this hip itself is doing, but the one thing that, again, as not a blockchain guy, but more on the, you know, technical side, um, I wouldn't, I would want to make sure that the scope of Helium stays with RF IoT networking and not, let's just grab the best features of the top 50 blockchains and cram them all into Helium, you know, like. Right. There are other blockchains that do data storage and you know stuff like that. I could see a use case for this within the IoT Helium ecosystem. This payment notes one, but you know, if someone wants to store random data, I wouldn't necessarily go after that market for people. You know, again, my personal opinion, like keep it Helium, simple, well scoped, do what it does well, and you know, if you want to do other tasks, there are maybe are other coins for that. Understanding that you know. Helium wants to grow and move into different things, but they need to be like a smart business, right? You don't sell food and do high frequency trading in the same company. You know, it's right. like <laughs> do what you do well. Maybe you expand, you know, out outwards, but keep it focused on what you do well. Yeah. Yeah, you say that now, but uh, the uh, Merrill Lynch supermarket is opening next week, so yeah. we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I definitely I buy the minimization of scope argument for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I think. Any software engineer who's worked on an even decently sized project knows that any new feature is technical debt. It's something mm -hmm. you have to maintain. And that's magnified by like 10x in a blockchain because as we were discussing in Discord recently, any feature that's added to the blockchain needs to be supported essentially in perpetuity because you always have to be able to validate all the blocks that ever existed. So. Mm -hmm. Any any new feature that's added is just it's it's a forever feature. There's no undo button. Um, yeah. Period. So that's that's definitely something to to consider. That being said, I think um, adding a a payment note field is is just like one of those really small things that's just like harmless and and won't really cause many maintenance headaches. So yeah, um, definitely in support of this. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for going through all these with me. We've we've uh, you know we've given um, a lot of our thoughts here. And I think um, hopefully people who were wondering about how some of these hips worked or what the, the pros and cons were 
now have a slightly better idea of you know how they're going to vote or how they um, are going to just process um, and have, how they're going to form their own thought processes on, on uh, uh, what the cost benefit to them would be. And I would like to remind everyone that HIPs are discussed in more detail on the community call, the DY monthly community call. That's the last Wednesday of every month. So definitely be on the lookout for that if you want to voice your opinions about a HIP. All of them are approved based on rough consensus, which basically means like if it seems like everyone's kind of kind of liking it and there's no strong opposing voices, it will be approved. So. If you have strong opinions on these things, it's critical to come to the community calls. It's critical to participate in the hip channels and, and look for the straw polls that I will occasionally throw out or another mod will throw out and participate there because that's really how we judge um, what people are feeling uh, about any of these hips and whether it should be, uh, they should be approved or rejected. And Andrew, as a, as a closing thought, you've, you've written two hips and you're listed on, uh, you're listed on another one. So. Do you have any more ideas for the future or are you, are you kind of uh, looking to tweak what you've already put out there and, and just continue on that path? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not, it, there's nothing big that I'm looking at now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm following the validator thing just like as a community member, not, you know, someone that's really a part ownership of that. Um, you know, I, I keep an interest on how 15 and 17 is going. I do think that there's a need for some tuning and, you know, in part of those, both those hips, there's a lot of flexibility in the chain variables to tune how those actually behave. Um, so, you know, I'm slowly looking at some of that, um, but that's probably like the next task that I'll come to the table with, with is, you know, hey, we should tune the chain variables in the hips that I already proposed in this way. Um, and that's just haven't taken the time or ha had the time yet to really dive into the data enough. You know, it's one of those things I want to um, do pretty well and make sure that, you know, I have data to back up what I propose, changes I propose. Um, but that's kind of what's next for me in the helium community. Well, I'm sure that will generate a very spirited discussion from many perspectives about yes. uh, <laughs> what should and shouldn't be adjusted. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. It's been yeah, a great discussion. And if anyone wants to talk to Andrew, they can at, at him on Discord, at Pura1. Um, yep. I'm sure if you've been in the Discord and you didn't know who he was, you probably will know now. So, or at least you'll, you'll see him around in some channel at some point, I, I guarantee it. So, um, and it, as always, you can reach out to me at Rarmon. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mm -hmm. Bye. I mean, what if you want to give your hosts more than you're earning yourself. What if you give them, you know, over 50%? I mean, pff, totally crazy thing to do, right? But <laughs> someone could do it. Yeah.